Today's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, just a quick announcement. Uh, there are no keys today. Um, so um, we had a little technical difficulty. So you'll get two keys next week. Um, it's important for you to pick up keys now because, as you know, we're modifying some of the answers, and so the correct responses will be on the keys. And so you can't use the, uh, the app to, I mean, you can use it if you want to memorize a long answer, but if you want to go with the short answer, then you want to get the key so you have the, the corrected uh, versions. All right, so uh, we continue our study of the New City Catechism. Uh, today we are on question 27, um, but by way of review, let's start with question 20. And again, I invite you to recite them from memory if you are able. Question 20, who is the Redeemer? Redeemer 21, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? 24, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? 25, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes, because of Christ's death, God will remember our sins so long. 26, what else does Christ's death redeem? Every part of all creation. 27, uh, the question for today, are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? The full answer is no. Only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Nevertheless, God in his mercy demonstrates common grace even to those who are not elect by restraining the effects of sin and enabling works of culture for human well-being 
we are all to memorize that first sentence. <laughs> no, only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day, and uh, we ask for your help uh, this morning. Uh, I know the topic today is uh, challenging, but God, we want to uh, have a level of understanding, a word that you have for us, a word of comfort for us. So we ask now that in the hearing, we might understand, and in understanding, uh, give you thanks and all the glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, verse 28 from our reading today, uh, which is a continuation from last week, is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a little unclear how it ought to be best translated, but Paul says essentially that though we will go through all kinds of suffering in this life, and particularly uh, suffering because of our faith in Jesus, and though we don't even know what to pray or how to pray, he says, we know, we know that God is working all things together for good. We can have confidence that for those who love God, for those who are the called, for those who are in Christ, God is working everything, everything, including our suffering, for good. As I preached last week, suffering is a step in the path to future glory. Suffering is not some, you know, ultimate good that ought to be pursued. It, it, this is not a call for some sort of a masochism in our Christian life. But suffering uh, ought to be embraced as a sign of this present age and as something that points to a future glory which will be realized in the end. It's a sign of hope for us of what future God has in store for us. Um, I think... The life of Joseph in Genesis is a really great illustration of this. Um, you may remember the story of Joseph. He came from, uh, his father Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. So you can imagine there's a lot of family drama in that family. Uh, Joseph was number 11 of 12 sons, but he happened to be the firstborn of the most favored of the four women. And so he was especially loved by his father. And uh, to make matters worse, Joseph wasn't very tactful in his dealings with his brothers. And so they all, they all hated him. Um, I know those of you who have siblings, you know, sometimes you argue with your siblings. Sometimes you don't get along with them great. Maybe you have some ongoing uh, disputes with them. Um, but... Joseph's siblings, I mean, they really, really hated him. I mean, they hated him so much, they were willing to, to murder him. Um, but eventually decided on selling him as a slave instead. And so imagine how hard it must have been for Joseph. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. He becomes a forced migrant slave in Egypt at the age of 17. He has to learn the language, adjust to the culture. He, he has to work just to survive the kinds of work he had to do. And then he has a little bit of success. He thinks, maybe I'm going to get out of this. Uh, his uh, master, Potiphar, is a, is a, seems to be a good guy, promotes him. But then Potiphar's wife sexually harasses him because, you know, Joseph is a good-looking dude, and even that's working against him now. 
And failing to seduce him, she falsely accuses him of attempted rape and has him sent to jail. In jail, he helps out a fellow prisoner who gets released, but then he promptly forgets to help out Joseph for another couple of years. And so, I mean, the first 17 years of his life, his brothers hate him. And then the next 13 years of his life, he's either a slave or in prison. It's hard for him, I imagine, to think that all things are somehow working together for good in any uh, conventional sense of the word. But you know the rest of his story. You know that eventually he does get out of prison, that eventually he, he rises in prominence in, the, uh, in Egypt. He gets to oversee the entire economic strategy of Egypt. And then another nine years pass, and he's reunited with his family. Um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of suffering in his life, much of it unearned. But years later, as he's looking back on his years of suffering, as he's looking back on his life, he tells his brothers this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's able to see that even the intended evil that his brothers had against him, God was able to use, not only for his good, but for the good of his family and indeed for the entire world, to save the world uh, from the famine. And I think that's the hope that we have to have when we're going through difficulties and suffering. And that's this word for us, that all things will ultimately work together for good for those who are in Christ, for those who love him. When life is hard, when doubts and disappointments threaten to overwhelm our faith, this is the word that we want to remember. So instead of listening to you know, the world's lies or to maybe the, the kinds of feelings you might be experiencing at that moment, trust God's eternal word. You may not see the good at that particular moment, but God can and will use all things for his greater glory and for our good. And Paul says, we know this. We can know this. And how do we know that all things are working together for good? Verses 29 and 30. He says, For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom God justified, he also glorified. Um, these are five big words. It's going to be a little heavy today. Fair warning. Um, this is what is sometimes known as the order of salvation, that our salvation begins with God's foreknowledge and it ends with our glorification. And so I want to look at these five steps from foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, to our glorification. So first, God foreknew. First, God foreknew. I know that for us, the idea of foreknowledge is having advanced information. That's the way we think of foreknowledge, right? It's like um, getting the answers to a test ahead of time. That's foreknowledge. And so when you take the test, because you have these answers in advance, you're able to do well. You knew something ahead of time. That's the way we think of foreknowledge, knowing something in advance. And so some people think, mistakenly, that God has this uh, understanding of us that God sees how we are going to live our lives right that God has foreknowledge of our actions in the future 
And so then God comes back and rewards us because God knows that we will be people of faith and do good works and so on. So some people interpret this as God knows ahead of time the good decisions we are going to make. And based on our actions, which God has foreseen, we will be granted salvation. Now, you see what the problem with that is, right? Um, And that is not foreknowledge, at least not the way the biblical writers talk about foreknowledge or use this word. Because even if we were supposed to, suppose that that is the way it works, even if it were the way it works, which it isn't, um, where does that faith still come from? Right? It's, it still comes from God. And you've heard it from me enough, and you've been here enough, that you know that the idea of God sort of foreseeing and then coming back is just wrong on so many, so many levels. It's wrong because, you know, God doesn't operate on time as we do. Time markers like the past, the present, the future are, are fundamentally meaningless for God. God is not bound by time as we are. There is no before. There is no foreknowledge or predestination. There is destination and there is knowledge. But there's no sense of time in, in the way we sort of live through time. God simply knows. And anything that sort of speaks of, uh, you know, God knowing something of our actions and rewarding us for that uh, goes against, you know, the entire Bible. There, there's so much in the scriptures uh, that speaks of salvation by grace and by grace alone that any sort of movement toward our contributing to our salvation, we, we have to challenge that notion because there's so much in scripture. There's, so, there's just an overwhelming amount of text that salvation is by grace and grace alone. John Calvin wrote, by saying that they were elected before the creation of the world, he precludes every consideration of merit. There is nothing that we can do. And that's, that's where God's election is. God chooses. It has nothing to do with our goodness or badness or anything. It's God's election. So instead of knowing prior you know, information ahead of time, what foreknowledge speaks to is that salvation was in the mind of God before he created us, before the creation of the world. It is unconditional. That is not based on what we do or fail to do, but entirely in God's free choice, in God's election. John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, the children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That is, not of our choosing. Just as you're born without your choosing, the spiritual life, the children of God, are not born by our human will, by our decision, but the will of God. Life is given, spiritual life is given, by the will of God. We don't choose. And that's what election is all about. Uh, I've mentioned to you before that in the Bible, to know, right? To know is to have the deepest possible sense of uh, understanding and connecting with people that it's really a synonym in the bible for love to say that to to know someone is really to love someone and that love is very much a synonym really for for choosing in the way the biblical writers use that word amos 3 2 for example god tells the people of israel you only have i known of all the families of the earth You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Think about that. God certainly knew all the families of all the earth. 
So when God says to Israel, you only I have known, he's not saying, you know, I don't know, I'm ignorant about what's going on in Egypt and in Syria. Like, that's not what he's saying. God says, you only I have known, you only have I loved, you only have I chosen. That's what it means to know from the position of God. Similarly, God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I loved you. I chose you for a purpose. That's God's foreknowledge. It's that knowing. It's God's decision before the foundations of the world to love us in Jesus Christ. It's that knowing. It's, that's the foreknowledge of God. God has set a special love on those whom he chose from before time. And so we call this unconditional election. That's the first word. Second word. Those God foreknew, that is, those God elected and chose to love, he predestined. He predestined. I know this is a really tough word, and this is a word that, for some of you, just makes you cringe a little bit, right? Um, It's a word that is really associated uh, with Presbyterians, with with Calvinism. Uh, You may not, maybe some of you grew up in churches that, didn't talk about this at all because uh, it's just, again, it has a bad reputation. It's a word that uh, conjures up all kinds of negative feelings. Um, but, but I want you to know, and I, I hope to show <clears throat> today, and I'm going to talk about this more next week as well, that it is a word given to us to encourage us, to comfort us, to reassure us. It is a difficult concept, but it's, it's a necessary one when we think about our salvation. Predestination simply means that those whom God has chosen, that those whom God has elected unconditionally have a purpose or a destiny. There is a destination. And that destiny, it says, to be conformed into the image of his son, to become like Jesus. It it flows naturally out of God's election. The Greek word for predestination um, comes from a root from which in English we get the word horizon. Predestination uh, comes from the word horizon, or horizon comes from the word for uh, predestination. And what's a horizon? A horizon is kind of a boundary. It's a limit. It, it sets the framework upon which we can see. And so when you look out and you see the horizon, you can't see beyond it, right? Like, you know there's something beyond it, but from our perspective, there's a limit to how far we can see. Um, but for God, there is no horizon. For God, this ideal of predestination is that that there is no horizon. There is no limitation, no frame that contains what God can see because God sees it all at once. Um, And so God is able to see all of history and all of our lives all at once, not limited by perspective as we are. Now, over the years, I've heard really three main complaints about predestination. Uh, The first complaint I I hear is that it's not fair. Predestination or the ideal of predestination is just not fair. How can God choose some people and not choose others without any consideration of merit? Before you're even born, how can God choose some and not choose some when, when God has no basis for judgment? Some people, you know, want to be judged. Because they think, you know, I'm pretty good compared to other people, and I'll take my chances. Maybe God will grade on a curve, and I can, I can get into heaven. 
Is that how you want to be judged? I, like, I don't. I really don't. Um, you know, the other night, my family and I, um, we watched a movie, a, a Korean movie. It's the second highest grossing movie of all time in South Korea, which is baffling to me. <laughs> I don't think it's very good. Um, but the movie is Along with the Gods, The Two Worlds. And uh, it came out last year, and it's, it's hugely popular. Um, and the premise is, it's, I, I understand that it's, uh, it's a, there's a Buddhist basis to it, that when a person dies, for 49 days, you have to go through seven trials. There are seven judges, and each judge will determine whether or not you are guilty of a particular sin. And if you are, then the judge will give you punishment, and you have to take that punishment before you can go to the next one. And after you go through all of the punishment, then you can be reincarnated. And so this guy, he's a, he's a firefighter, and, and he's going through these trials, and he's got, you know, it's, it's like, a, like a court drama, right? He's got the prosecutor saying, well, you know, you, you, were, you were hateful. You know, you were not, uh, you didn't show filial piety to your, to your mother. And, and he's got the, you know, the uh, defenders trying to defend him from, from these accusations. And, um, and it's... It was really interesting because, you know, if you're found guilty, then you go to, like, hell, and you're tormented for years and years, right? If you do something, like, if you kill somebody, then, then you're going to suffer, like, you know, and they're just bad for, like, years and years. And then you go to the next judge, and then on and on, right? And I thought, you know, I don't want that, right? I don't care who you are. You're going to be found guilty. There is no way for any of us to escape that kind of trial. There's just no way. So if that's the case, then then we're just going to have years and years of suffering. And maybe for, you know, like if I think about the way they set it up, I I mean, I'm going to be in there forever. I'll never be reincarnated if I'm really honest with, you know, with my own life. Um, God's election and predestination is an act of mercy. Because when we think about fairness, we think somehow we deserve something better. But that's not the way the scriptures understand our human condition. The Bible says that we are all sinners. We are all guilty, every single one. So the question of fairness is not about, it's not really about fairness. It's a question of generosity. Because we are all justly condemned. We are all equally guilty before God. And so if God elects some, the unfairness is in the generosity of God that he would save some, not that others are being punished. We know this much, right? That God is love and that God is just. And though we cannot see the full scope as redeeming plans, we know that we can trust God in his goodness, that we lean upon God's mercy. Um, and again, I want to talk some more about this uh, hopefully uh, next week. The second kind of complaint I hear about uh, predestination is not that it's only not fair, but that it denies human freedom, right? That if predestination, and we think of predestination, God already knows what's going to happen, then, you know, we have no human freedom. We're just robots. There's nothing I can do 
to make any difference. And so why should I be good? Why should I go to church? Why should I pray? Why should I do anything? Like, why don't I just go, you know, murder and pillage and all that? Because if I'm saved, then I'm saved. And it doesn't matter what I do. Um, But in fact, predestination is just the opposite of that. It's a paradox, but as creatures living in space and time, from our perspective, only the doctrine of predestination allows us now to live in freedom and to make good choices. It motivates or or it empowers us to be able to live and make good choices. Uh, For example, consider um, a drug addict. A person who is a drug addict begins by thinking, I'm free to do drugs if I want to. And that may be true. But what happens over time? Soon enough, that addiction takes over. And you could say he has a choice about doing the drugs or not. But really, once you're addicted, that has power over you. And you, 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 don't, have, you don't really have the freedom to choose to not do it. Or it's incredibly difficult, right? Likewise, you know, when, because we are born in sin in Adam, we don't have the power We cannot choose the good. We don't have that. We are dead in our sins. But if we come to understand our election and predestination, then we are given the pledge of the Holy Spirit, and we are now empowered and able to resist evil and to do good. We now have genuine freedom to do and to obey God. It frees us from the anxiety about our own salvation. And then the third question that I'm often asked about this is, how do I know if I'm one of the elect, if I'm saved or not? How do I have that assurance? How can I know? What if I, you know, go to church and pray and read my Bible and do all that stuff, um, but I'm not one of the ones who God predestined for salvation? How can I have assurance and confidence that I'm one of the elect. And I would say the simple answer to that is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The Gospel of John tells us that the Gospel has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. Um, I, I would put it this way. Have you responded to the Gospel in any way? That is a sign that you are in Christ. Because you cannot respond to the gospel unless the spirit of God is working in you. How do we know somebody like Abraham was a man of faith? He responded to God's word. God said, go to the land that I will show you. And he went. Responded to God's word, even though he wasn't quite sure where he was going. And I think that's, that's a good sign for us. When you hear God's word and and you feel a movement to respond to that, to obey that, that is a sign that you are in Christ. Because apart from the spirit of God working in you, you cannot make that move. Of your own will, you cannot choose to respond in faith. Because faith itself is a gift. Someone once asked me, you know, what happens if somebody wants to be saved, but God hasn't chosen them, right? Someone who really, I, I want to be saved, but this person happens to be someone that God hasn't chosen to save. And, and I, to that I said, you know, that has never happened. That cannot be. That's impossible. That's an impossible situation. No one wants to be saved on their own. 
that desire to seek Christ, to seek faith, that that is a gift of God. That is a working of the Spirit of God in you. Third, those God predestined, God called. So God's foreknowing, God's choosing election, God's predestination, they're outside of our reality because all of that happens before anything, before creation, um, before we're born. But now, all of God's eternal decisions enter into space and time in God's calling. In God's calling. There is a kind of universal calling to all people, like the gospel, like the sower who sows seeds on all different kinds of grounds. From our perspective, everyone can hear the call of God and obey. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Whoever would be my disciple, let him pick up his cross and follow me. And so this is why we preach. This is why we do evangelism and missions. We want to get the word out. This is the call of God to all people in all places and in all times. However, it is not effective for everyone. You know, sometimes uh, when I'm walking around town, um, I usually have my headphones, so sometimes I don't hear her. But sometimes people see me walking and, and they'll shout out my name. Right? They'll say, usually they'll say, Pastor Dave. <laughs> Everyone hears that, right? But only I respond to it. Everyone hears, but only I respond to that, right? Sometimes we make an announcement in church, you know? Anybody interested in doing this ministry, you all hear, but most of you don't hear because you, you don't respond. Right? So, so the call of God, the invitation of God, the calling of God goes out in a general sort of way, but only those who are elected and predestined can actually hear that word. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you can only hear the call in space and time if God has elected and has predestined you. The older theologians call this effectual calling because calling has power. It has power, right? It's like the, like the story of Lazarus. When Jesus said to Lazarus, come out, he came out. Any one of us could have said, Lazarus, come on out, and it would have been worthless. But even the dead has to obey the word of God. That, that's the power of God's calling. We cannot resist that because God's word has that kind of power even to impart life. My word shall be, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God's calling is absolute and certain. And you can have confidence, you can have confidence that when God calls, you'll obey. Those he called, he justified. Uh, We've talked quite a bit about this already. Paul spends a big chunk of the book of Romans talking about justification. He uses all kinds of language, language from the slave markets to talk about how we have been set free or redeemed. He uses language from uh, temple ritual to say that Jesus has made a sacrifice of atonement. He gives it the historical example of the Passover to say that our sins have been passed over 
by the Lamb of God in Jesus. He used the language of the, uh, from accounting to insist that our sins are no longer reckoned against us or counted against us. He uses political language to say that we have been reconciled or made peace with God. And he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have been declared righteous by God, by the cross. God pronounces us, imputes to us, gives to us a righteousness, pronouncing that we are legally free from the penalty of our sins from the law because Jesus has taken that penalty for us. We are justified because those whom he called he justified. And lastly, those he justified, he glorified. And what's interesting here is that, you know, Paul says glorified using the past tense. You would think he would write, those he justified, he will glorify in some future date. But he says, no, God glorified as if it's already done. Uh, grammatically, the future act of God is so certain that Paul writes as if it's already happened. And from God's perspective, it sort of has. Paul is so certain of our ultimate salvation and glorification in Christ because it is the work of God from start to finish. It's all done. Just as surely as our glorification began before the creation of the world, so it will be accomplished. We are elected, we are predestined, we are called, justified, and glorified. I know that's, that's a bit heavy. Um, I, I titled my sermon today, The You in Tulip. Um, to get even heavier, uh, Tulip, uh, as many of you probably know already, is an acronym for what's known as five-point Calvinism. Uh, the, the letters of Tulip, uh, T stands for total depravity, U, unconditional election, which is what uh, I've been talking about, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P, uh, perseverance of the saints. They're all related. I hope you can see that, right? That we are sinners in need of rescue and that God has chosen us in Jesus Christ before, before anything to love us in him. And so Jesus died for us because of that decision of God. He made limited atonement. That is, he died for those whom God had already elected and predestined and called. And so because God is the one who is doing this, we can have absolute confidence that he will hold on to us until the very end, that we will persevere until the very end. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is such a word of assurance for us. God will not let you go. He can't, because that decision has been made before time and in all time. I know this is a, you know, talking about this in sort of these sort of um, logical steps and thinking about this sort of um, in this kind of way um, is not to say that the actions and decisions of God are sort of strictly um, logical or uh, intellectual. I think in many ways, when we talk about this, it's a way of trying to understand 
what God is doing and how we, ex- we experience what God is doing uh, in our lives uh, and in the world. I think whenever you hear people give their testimony or talk about how they came to faith, you, you hear all this, right? Because you, you talk about how you made a decision for Christ, right? How you uh, decided to receive Christ into your heart. That's the language people use. But, but in a good testimony, when, you, when people talk about that, there is always in this background the sense that God is the one who's been kind of working in their lives, positioning them, introducing them to certain people or to certain messages, or right? That God is the one who has been kind of hovering over their lives and directing their paths. And it was kind of almost inevitable that you ended up making a decision for Christ. I mean, that, that's, the, that's what I hear in, in testimonies. Certainly, that, that's the way I would try to describe my own testimony. Um, and I want you to know, I mean, this is why for me, this is why I'm Presbyterian, um, why I'm reformed in my uh, theological thinking, uh, at least the, the ground, the foundation of it. Um, it. It's not just kind of a haphazard choice, because for me, that's the good news of the Bible. As I read scripture, that's the good news for me, that my life rests in God's decision. That it's, that it's not me. I mean, it's, it's such a freedom to know that the decision to be saved is God's decision. And that God's decision is irrevocable, right? It's, it's not going to change, regardless of what I do or fail to do. That for me, you know, it, it's, I don't know, sometimes, maybe I, maybe, you know, you hear it so often, you know, that the grace of God and, and all, like, when you, when you think about that, I mean, man, that is, that is such good news. You know, every now and then I get to share this with somebody and, and they hear it and they get it for the first time. And you just see people, they're just overwhelmed. Because you realize, my goodness, God has loved me. And it's, all my sins are just, just wiped out. Like when you really just, when you really think about that, I mean, that, that, that's just beyond good news. Right? That, that's life-changing, life-transforming. It, it impacts everything you do. Um, you know, th- somebody's put it this way that I, th- I found helpful. It's a little bit like falling in love, <clears throat> for those of you who've experienced it. Uh, I'm not encouraging you young people to do that right now. Um, <laughs> ask your parents about it. Um, you know, when you fall in love with someone... You don't really choose to love that person, right? It's not like you get a book and you get all these people and you look at all the qualities and say, I'm going to fall in love with this person. Like, that, that's not the way that works. <laughs> I know that's the way people are trying to make it work. Uh, but, but that's not really the way it works. That really isn't, right? And even if you see someone and you think they're you know, whatever and you want to um, choose to love that person, um, it's, it's not entirely your choice. Like something happens. Yeah, you can blame it on hormones or whatever, but, but there is something that happens that's not just pure choice. And years later, when you kind of look back on it, you can kind of look at it, and, and it almost seems inevitable, right, that your life was somehow positioned, that certain events happened to bring you that, to that point. Um, 
yeah, you can talk about how, why this person is a good fit for you, why it's a logical choice, and all of that. But in reality, it wasn't simply a matter of you choosing. There, there was something else. And, and it's, it's in that sense where I'm trying to use this language, I think, and Paul, too, I think, to talk about predestination and, and election and all of this as a way of trying to help us understand what's going on. And this is the only basis for us, the, the foundation that we can have. Because if it were up to us, it would be so unstable. And Paul is just trying to tell us, you can have assurance. Whatever suffering, whatever hardships you're going through, it's, it's okay. It's going to lead to ultimate glory. God has done all of this. And if God has done all of this for us from before time, then we have nothing to fear in this life and in the life to come. Right? That's how he concludes this section. He asks all these rhetorical questions. If God is for us, based on all that God has done, right? If God has done all of this, and if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. If God did not spare his son, his only son, if God has given us the most precious thing there is, won't he give us everything else? Of course he will. Who is going to bring a charge against you? I mean, God could, but no, God's the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Well, Christ could condemn us, but no, he died for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And Paul thinks of everything that could possibly separate us. Life, death, powers. And he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is nothing to fear. Nothing on God's side is against us. Nothing in the world can bring a charge against us because God's actions from all eternity has been for us. It's been for you. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in this world. So, so have confidence. Have reassurance. And know that God's election is, is the beginning, is the beginning of our salvation. And, and we can have absolute confidence in that. Because it is the work of God from start to finish. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, I know that we live in a time when uh, Human freedom and choice can sometimes feel like the most important thing there is. Um, but we are reminded today that there is something more important. And that is your free decision, your sovereignty, your decision to love us in Christ. And God, help us to, to, to know, to understand, and simply to trust that your election means life for us and that this word is a word of encouragement. To know that your decision will not change and that we can be confident that you will never let us go. And so in that promise, help us to live accordingly, to live as free people to choose good, to reject evil. We ask all this in Jesus' name.